Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. In this season, we are going through the book of Romans, and today's episode is Roman chapter 6, Practical Christianity. Now, before we get started, there was just a little bit that I wanted to discuss, um, and just in kind of regards to the introduction, what this is all about. And um, through my church, our small groups are going through the book of Hebrews. And I have a small group on Wednesday mornings, and I absolutely adore everyone in there. But one of the things that is a resounding theme every single week is everyone comes in, whether brand new at studying the Bible or have been seasoned and taught Bible studies and are grounded in the Word, we all agree Hebrews is hard. And so every week we come and we say, oh, this chapter was hard, and I don't think that I was actually understanding everything. But then as we break it down and start sharing what we did understand about it, but then everyone in the room is sharing, we all end up with a pretty comfortable understanding of what the writer was trying to say. All of this to say is that that is why it's so important for you to do this in community. Even if that means just one other person will agree to come to study the scriptures on their own, but then to come once a week and talk about it, it just grows us Um, in a way that we can't grow alone. It's like taking layers of an onion off in our understanding. And so I just want to encourage you um, with that and that um, just keep it up if you are doing this. It's so important. Okay, well, heading into chapter six, I do want to mention that Paul in Romans five had introduced this idea that grace has a much greater power than sin. So going straight into chapter six, which when he's writing this letter, it's not broken up into any chapters. So this next section, he is going to assume that the church of Rome, the people of the church of Rome might have questions and he's going to assume what some of their questions are. And so that is what he does going straight into this. He asks a rhetorical question. And in fact, in this book, he's going to ask 70, around 74 rhetorical questions. Now, I have to be honest with you, whenever I first started preparing all my notes and reading over them to do this podcast, I always love um, sharing those aha moments that I had that just really opened up as I was studying, or maybe there's something um, in the culture of that day that I've studied and I can't wait to share with you that's going to be something hopefully new that you didn't know. Um, you know, usually I find, try to find that one exciting thing or even maybe a story that um, is applicable to this chapter. And this morning, as I went over it one last time, I was just thinking, man, this is just going to be me teaching without any bells or whistles. And I felt like the Lord was just saying, slow and steady and faithful wins the race. Like we don't always have to have this great aha moment or chills or tears or um, cool stories. But if we stay um, if we stay steady and disciplined and reading through this, it's just good stuff that God is teaching us and we need to know it. And so just the fact that we're doing this together, we're coming once a week, we're talking about these things, God is doing something on the inside of us, even if you don't have chill bumps to show for it. 
So we start off with this rhetorical question about sin and how grace triumphs over sin. And he says, what should we say then? Continue in sin so that grace could multiply? So he already predicted that there might be this question um, that the Romans would have like, oh, well, if uh, God gets glorified in our sin and grace abounds, well, let's just keep sinning so that grace can abound even more. In fact, there's a quote from, I got it, I think, from Enduring Word. It's from W.H. Auden. I don't know who he is, but he is quoted as saying, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. And this just shows you that this is the mindset that some people have. Like, oh, I'll just continue in sin because God's grace is so magnificent. But he is teaching them that a true uh, disciple of Christ should be growing in their relationship with God where they want to look more like him and less like themselves. So, This seems to be a reoccurring theme that we just kind of hit over and over and over and over again in Romans. But, you know, the the Jewish people were (laughs) hard-headed. And I think just mankind is also hard-headed that Paul's needing to say this over and over and over again, just like we have to tell our children things over and over and over again. Because while we have the head knowledge that, oh, yeah, yeah, I need to be looking more like God and fleeing from sin and changing from my old man and being transformed into a new man, we still just have this tendency to go back and be who we were without this desire for transformation. So a couple of thoughts that I had on this is when true transformation happens, it's like an explosion in a sinner's life. It The explosion destroys works of the flesh and the believer no longer wants to do the sinful acts that they did before. I love what Beth Moore says about this. She said that as she came to know Christ and began to grow in him, that God changed her wanter, meaning that she wanted certain things before Christ, but then after Christ, he changed those desires, those, those desires that she wanted for. He changed her wanter. This transformation cannot be something forced. I loved um, Jeremiah Johnson is somebody who I follow on social media. And there was a reel recently of him saying, the gospel is not a gospel of behavior modification. Meaning we can't go in, even to our children, who should be the the primary focus of our discipleship, we can't just say, do this because God says so. We need to be explaining why. We need to be discovering why. Maybe we don't know why. And so I look at this as in my parenting as um, our philosophy in parenting. When we had little small children, they first needed to learn to just obey for their safety. Um, I don't have time when I'm screaming, stop, don't run into the road to explain, oh, honey, if you don't obey me, you're going to run into the road and I see a car coming. We need them to just obey because we said so. But as they grow and as they mature, we need to explain why on a lot of things. And that should be just as Christians, what we're trying to discover, like, why does God say no sex into marriage? You know, is that just because he was, he's up there laughing and doesn't want people to have fun? No, there's a spiritual reason why. Um, why does he say that we need to forgive seven times? Why? Because there is a spiritual, basically you're dying spiritually and you're becoming, I read something recently and I thought it was so fascinating that when we don't forgive and bitterness takes root, we begin seeing the world through the lens of Satan instead of through the eyes of God. So there is reasons why. So this gospel is not just behavior modification, do this, do that, and have little robots. No, we want to know the heart of God, and we want to learn the reasons why he thinks the way he does. And then 
as we draw near to him, he changes the things that we want on the inside and we begin to transform so that it's not just, oh, well, I really want to do this, but I can't. It's, I don't even want to do that anymore. You know, one of the first um, things that when I start teaching people how to read their Bible and dig in, and I'm talking, these will be usually people who have followed Christ for a long time. And the first thing when they're in the word on their own, that they end up telling me the most common thing is that they stop cussing. So they were followers of God. They loved God. They worshiped God. They weren't really in the word. And so they were just, you know, having a foul mouth. But I didn't have to go in and say, hey, if you're going to do this all the way, you should really watch your speech. I've never mentioned that to somebody, but that is just a byproduct. All of a sudden, they don't want to have that kind of language, not because somebody told them so, just because they're so connected to the vine that they start becoming like Christ, and they know that every word out of their mouth matters. Life and death come out of the power of the tongue, so they choose to use their words for good. And um, let's see. Let me get back to my notes because I veered on a rabbit trail. Okay. So uh, you cannot lead by emphasizing the law over grace to instill fear so that people will obey. That turns into checking boxes and a religious duty rather than a relationship. Okay. So then he goes on to verse two after his question, you know, remember what should we do? Continue in sin. He says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So that is what the key verse for today is going to be. He's introducing this idea that we actually, when we become followers of him, we, um, accept Jesus as our Lord and savior. And we follow that up and Uh, proclaim to the world that we are followers of him with water baptism, we are actually dying to sin. So he's like, how can you live in sin if you're dead to it? Or were you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we're going to talk about baptism this morning. This is a next step for all believers. I do not believe that scripture says that you have to be baptized to be saved, but I do believe that it is something that God is asking us to do, and so we need to obey in that. And this baptism was a baptism, it was a symbol of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so for us, that is a symbol of death to sin. We buried our old man, and then we come out of the water, raised to new life, just like Jesus died. He took our sin and he died. He was buried. He stayed in hell for three days. He conquered sin and then he rose again in his glorified body. That is a picture of what is happening to us spiritually. Now, this water baptism was a baptism that John the Baptist had introduced to the Jewish people as a baptism of repentance, but it was older than that. Most Jewish people were very familiar with a practice that was called mikveh. They would have these pools outside of the Jewish temple and before they went in to their daily sacrifices or um, any of the holy feast, they would go into the body of water, they would walk into it and they would dip their hands in and then they would touch their head and their heart. So they were cleansing their hands their mind, and their heart before they went into the temple. Now, they didn't believe that they needed to be fully immersed because they were already in their mind right with God because they were God's chosen. But if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they would have to be fully immersed. Now, a couple of other things. If 
that were different Jewish sects that you're familiar with from reading the Gospels. You had the Essenes, the Zealots, you know, Simon, one of the disciples was a Zealot. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even the Herodians are mentioned. So you had all these sects, and they just basically had different ways of, you know, kind of like denominations in the Christian world today. They they were political, but they also had different viewpoints on Scripture. And the Essenes were the ones that John the Baptist came from. They were more separatists. They wanted to live a very holy life, and they did not want to be exposed to even the uncleanliness of the other sects. They also took translating the Bible and rewriting the scrolls very seriously, and it was a tedious process. So when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were from the Essene community at Qumran, they were perfectly preserved works and pieces from the ancient world that just are so valuable to us as believers today because of what all they went through to make sure that every single word was translated and rewritten, not translated, but just transcribed correctly. And in order to be an Essene, whether you were Jew or Gentile, you had to be baptized. That was a requirement of there. So this baptism was something that was not unheard of, but John the Baptist he was kind of introducing it in a new way, saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters, you need to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And he was calling them to a water baptism where they would actually be fully immersed. And this word comes from the Greek word baptizo, and it's a transliteration. It's, there wasn't a perfect word in the English language for baptism, but it's from the... Um, community of people that did um, textiles and they would need to dye them or even the the community or the economic, um, I, I'm losing my words this morning, but from leather tanners, they would need to dye the leather or um, the textile industry would need to dye their clothing, you know, their, their cloth to make clothing. This was a word common to them. And this baptizo word means to dip, to soak and immerse into a liquid and listen to this, that what is dipped, what is dipped, whatever you are dipping, takes on the qualities of what it is dipped in. For an example, if you were wanting to dye something that was royal blue, you would have, you would put the dye in the water. Then you would take your cloth that was probably white or cream or or whatever, and you would submerge it into the royal blue water. And your white cloth would actually take on the qualities of what was dipped and become royal blue. Its identity was changed. Why is that important for us to talk about? Well, when we are baptized, that means to be dipped, to soak, and immerse into a liquid in the baptism pool. And what is dipped, you and I, take on the qualities of what it is dipped in. And in the ancient world, they believed that they called that water living water. And then Jesus gets up on the Temple Mount one day and he says, Here I am, I am living water. So this living water that we are dipped in is representative of Jesus Christ and the living attributes of him. And when we are dipped, we actually take on his quality. So how can we sin? We're dead to sin because he took on the sin of the world and he died for it. So our, we are dead to sin and we are raised to new life, a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
Um, I'm kind of looking over my notes to see if there was anything. Um, I just put water baptism for the early Christian was an invitation into Christian living. It identified someone as a follower of Jesus and the movement symbolized that we were also dead and buried in sin and raised to new life. It is not necessary for salvation, but something that all believers should do. So that's a good just review of that. So verse four says that we are buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too walk in a new way of life. Now, this is a very common term. The way, the way someone walked, their walked in the Jewish world denotes their lifestyle. So this was a common metaphor. A man's walk was a man's lifestyle. Was he a man of integrity? Was he a man of his word? Was he someone who lived by the Holy Scriptures? And then in verse 5, it says that we are united with him in death and resurrection. So Paul is driving on the point that we are raised to new life, but that also means that we are united to him in his death. Our old man is dead. We are going to grow together. And this, this word united is a term that can come from horticulture. So it's a picture of growing together. It's a picture of us, you and I, or a plant, just a little root um, being grafted into a tree and it actually becomes one and grows together. So we are grafted into Jesus and we become united. Now, the enduring word said that this crucified life is preparation for the resurrected life. I loved that. So we cannot fully live to the extent of this resurrected life if we do not crucify something. We find freedom and joy in this resurrected life when we crucify our flesh. Galatians 2.12, Paul says, It is no longer I, but your spirit within. I have been crucified with Christ. And this in Romans is what he's talking about. This is a path to being an image bearer or path to servant leadership, a path to less of us and more of him. As salvation, our old man spiritually dies and a new creation emerges. Let's see, the enduring word says, the Old Testament system of the law tries to reform the old man. That's what it was about. It was about reforming the, the, the old man. But the old man can never be reformed. He must be put to death because he is always going to fail. He is always going to rise up and cause us to stumble. But in the spirit, we are raised with a new man that God ordains. The new man created according to God in righteousness and true holiness was found in Ephesians 4.24. And Ephesians 4.22 tells us to put off our old man because he's dead. So this is common language that we see Paul telling um, talking to other believers in all of his letters. I have literally watched since Bible Nerds had started, I have literally watched scripture convict, guide, restore, and transform people who I study with. No one is having to correct anyone. The Holy Spirit is doing all the work. It won't even be things that are brought up in the weekly study, but just being connected to that chapter, the Holy Spirit starts working on other parts of their lives that he didn't even talk about in scripture, but they now are connected to the vine. And so the Holy Spirit is changing their wanter. You just have to point people to the word and let the word do the work. 
We will still battle our flesh though. So our old man has been crucified, but we still battle against the world system or a lot of times it's called the beast system. It's the system of Satan. It's um, the rebellious system of um, making yourself a known God. Look what I can do with my own hands. I can do this. I can build wealth. I can build success. I can do all of this on my own. And we also will battle Satan and his enemy, principalities and powers of darkness. They are always going to tempt our flesh. And guess what? We fight that by quoting the word. And we have to do this daily. So we are no longer a slave to sin because we have died to it. And we, he urges us not to let sin reign and to obey its desires. This tells us that there is an action to take. We must take an action. And when we become followers of Christ, his Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we know a list of the fruit of the Spirit if you've been in church. Love, joy, peace, um, kindness, long-suffering. The list goes on. Gentleness. One of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. So we do not let sin reign. We have self-control. We tell our, I loved how Shara said it. We tell our flesh, you're dead to me. No, we say no. And we fill ourselves with the word of God. And part of this, if we're really having problems, James tells us to confess our sins one to another so that one, God will forgive you. But for two, the person that you're telling, there's accountability and their job is to pray for you. And there's something supernatural that happens when two or more are gathered together to pray. So we're not to offer our bodies to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. Now, I thought this was super interesting. In the ancient world, there are two kingdoms at war. They believe that. They believe that there are two kingdoms at war. And both have spiritual weapons that we are invited to use. So Paul was warning us that if we participate in sin, we are using Satan's weapons. But he is offering, he is encouraging us to offer ourselves to God in his kingdom to use God's weapons. Now, I, this made me think, if we are sinning, we are participating in sin in Satan's kingdom and using his weapons. There are so many things that can rise up. You know, just just last night, um, Newly told me that, um, that he had found out some things that someone who had been in our home that we have counseled, that we have let cry, that we've spent hours edifying and encouraging in ministry, we found out that they had said some things about him. And immediately I got mad because, you know, Mama Bear, you don't mess with my family. How would this person do that? And I was like, oh, this, I'm letting anger and bitterness set in. And you know what? I don't want to be a weapon for Satan's army. So immediately I had to repent and ask God to check my heart. And I had to pray for that person. And I asked the Holy Spirit to bless them. And I asked the Holy Spirit to change my heart towards them, to give me eyes to see them, you know, and whew, we just, we have to check ourselves because that is going to be so easy to just slip in and let the, the sinful areas of our life become weapons against God's kingdom. And there is no time for that. And to be honest, the person that was saying the things about Newly, I've watched that happen in his life. He took an offense with someone in ministry and I just saw bitterness and anger eat him up. And it has affected all his relationships since. And so I don't want to just follow in those footsteps. We have to call it what it is. We have to recognize what it is. And we have to put it to death. So he moves into a section, Paul, 
that is called, um, in my Bible, it was entitled From Slaves of Sin to Slaves of God. Now, slavery was the best-known institution in the ancient world, and I'd read that 35 to 40% of Rome's inhabitants were slaves. That is unreal. So Paul's readers are tracking here. This is something extremely common. Now, modern humanism, that is where our country is. We prize our prize ourselves at being subject to nothing but ourselves, our own desires, our own reasoning, we're our own God. That is such a different worldview than the audience that Paul is talking about. In Paul's world, all humans, well, the people believe that all humans were un, under control of outside powers, whether that be the gods, the little g gods, stars, fate, there was some sort of outside power and they were under its control. And Paul is telling these people, something will own you, either sin or or righteousness. And then he urges them to pursue holiness or sanctification. This word holiness, you know, we tend to think that it's like this power of goodness and godliness that just radiates from certain people. All it means is to be set apart. And to give you a picture of exactly what it was is the tools inside the tabernacle. Let's just say the lampstand. Um, that uh, that lampstand was holy. It was set apart. That didn't mean that there was something unique in and of itself of this lampstand, you know, that they had to go on search of the perfect lampstand that would just radiate holiness. No, they just went to the market. Oh, this lamps. I don't know. They didn't really just go to the market. Um, God told them to forge it in a certain way. But that lampstand being holy meant, oh, you can't just use it for any old, oh, it's dark in here. Let's light it. That lampstand was set apart to be only used for God. And that is what he's saying to do with our life, to be set apart, to be used for God, not to just use our lives, this temple of the Holy Spirit casually. It's to be set apart. And so Paul is encouraging his readers, be set apart for God. And another word for this holiness is sanctification. And that is something that is a lifetime journey of being changed. In fact, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible, Bible background commentary. That's a good one. That's a good one for you to purchase. It said, Christians will progress further and further on the path of becoming different from the world and closer to the Lord's own holiness. This takes time. And you know, I was talking recently with my study group that it, I have been walking with the Lord. I started really faithfully at 19 and I'm 47 and just recently, the Lord has convicted me of some things that I've never been convicted for before. So it took him that long suffering, that patience that he has. It took him 20 something years to even get to that part of my life and convict him. He's not in this extreme hurry to change every single facet of us. He has this unbelievable patience where he just works on a few things at a time. And then after we've mastered those things, he might introduce a few more things. And so who are we to look at someone who is on a different time period of their journey and in a whole different place and say, oh, I can't believe that they're doing that. If God's not worried about it, maybe he hasn't even mentioned that to them yet or given them eyes to see because he's working on five other things. And so we really just need to worry about ourselves and then the way... In this particular thing, I'm not even going to mention what it is, but, you know, I could just go around and say, oh, I saw you at this place and you shouldn't participate in that. And that's evil and that's witchcraft. And I think that people think I was crazy and close up, but I have been so surprised at how many people 
The door is open because they've said, hey, I want to ask you about something. What's your opinion on this? And I'm able to share my journey to come into the conclusion that I have. I don't force that on anyone. I just say, hey, I pray that God guides you. But this is, I take a harsh stand. I believe that it is wrong and I believe that it is wicked. And what is so fascinating to me is I've never had that conversation with a particular friend of mine and she participated in it. And just recently, the Lord has revealed to her He's convicted her of it and she loves it, but she has had eyes to see and she's like, you know what? I'm just going to walk in obedience. I don't really fully understand it, um, but I'm going to walk in obedience. We've never had a conversation. God just aligned our hearts in this one particular situation. So that is what I'm saying. It's a, Holiness is a journey. Sanctification is a journey. And sure, when people ask my opinion, I will share it, but I'm not going to force these things that are not really black and white in scripture. This thing that I'm talking about is not like, it doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, stay away from this. It is um, something that would be gray in scripture, perhaps, because it's not just in there black and white. Anyway, I hope that didn't confuse you. Um, But this holiness, the sanctification is a journey, but we have to put effort into that journey. We don't just walk without doing, just like you're not going to become buff and fit and lean because you worked out one time. It's something that you have to continue to do. And then different things that you do will build upon one another. So my prayer is that the Lord teaches all of us through his word, who he is, and that he molds us to look more like him. And that we are willing vessels when God is um, laying something on our hearts that we might even enjoy and like and not want to give up to just trust him and walk in that obedience. I promise we will all be better for it, and the kingdom of God will expand because of it. We have concluded chapter six. We got through one more week. I'm so excited that you're going on this journey with me. It just truly uh, blesses my heart, and um, you know, we have so much to offer in 2023. We cannot wait to get some things finalized, to start announcing some of these things, but they're going to be things that you can invite your friends to, even people that aren't a part of Becoming a Bible Nerd, and it's just things to help get more tools in your hands, build community, and be set free in Jesus. So we thank you for joining in. Happy reading. I'll see you next week.